Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Clara Brenner, co-founder and managing partner at the Urban Innovation Fund. In this episode, we discuss Clara's journey from real estate development to venture capitalist. What I admire about Clara and am inspired by is her mission-led focus on solving interesting community challenges. She co-founded the Urban Innovation Fund to invest in startups that are shaping the future of cities, providing capital and support to startups that are tackling some of the toughest urban challenges. And I hope you'll see why, but I loved learning about the fund from Clara, about what it's like to start a venture capital firm with your very best friend, and ultimately creating an investment firm focused on connection. Please enjoy this interview with the exceptional Clara Brenner. Hi, Clara. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I am so excited to have you on. And a big thank you to Lauren Sirku for the very kind introduction. I've known Lauren for many years, and we've spent a lot of time discussing entrepreneurs, investors, and those with mission-led organizations and impact. The last time we caught up a couple months ago, she goes, oh my gosh, I forgot to introduce you to Clara at UIF. She is incredible. Yeah, thanks. I've known Lauren since we first launched the fund. She's been one of our earliest, longest, best supporters. We always appreciate the references. Before we get into Urban Innovation Fund and what you and your co-founder, Julie, have really created, which is phenomenal, I always like to rewind people's highlight reel all the way back because I'm fascinated by personal journey stories and upbringing. So if you don't mind sharing first where you grew up. I grew up in Washington, D.C., America's capital. I was an only child. I have a stepsister now, but she didn't become a stepsister till we were adults. So I grew up very much an only child with both of my parents working in very traditional DC jobs. My dad worked as a lawyer for the federal government and my mom worked as an economist for the World Bank. And it's so funny because growing up, I was like, I'm never going to do what they're going to do. I'm going to go in a totally different field. And the other day, someone offhandedly mentioned how similar my job is to my mother's job, which was basically funding new entrepreneurs in emerging parts of the world. And it hit me like a bolt of lightning. I was so shocked, but they were right. I thought I was going in a totally different direction, but I ended up just like her, which is great. She's wonderful and we're super close, but it was not what I thought of myself doing. This fun that you created and now your mission, has she recognized also the similarity or not yet? I think she did, but she's a great mom. And so she let me think that this was all my idea. (laughs) (laughs) All the entrepreneurs and investors and folks I've interviewed, they're successful now and they have this amazing professional path. But going into college, people had no idea. And so for the listeners who might be young and saying, gosh, Clara knew what she wanted to do or her mom helped influence that or her parents helped shape that. I think that's the case where you find it on your own. So if you don't mind sharing how you chose the undergraduate college you went to and why. So I went to NYU in New York City. 
I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Actually, for a while, I thought I was going to be a photojournalist, which is one of the reasons NYU, which has a great arts program, was very appealing. But more than anything, I just wanted to be in New York. I remember that feeling of, I'll just die if I'm not in New York. If I have to live under a bridge, so be it. I just got to <laughs> get to Manhattan feeling that very strongly. And college was really wonderful. It was less like going to college. It was more like taking classes and living in New York City, which is what I had wanted at the time. I remember feeling very adult. I just want to be an adult. I want to be on my own. I want to do my own thing, even though I had no idea what my own thing was. I was really interested in two fields, really the big industries from Washington, D.C., where I'm from, which are, of course, real estate development and government. I knew I wanted to do something that had a positive impact that made communities more exciting, more interesting, where I could be a creative contributing member of society, but I wasn't really sure which direction to do. So I ended up writing a thesis as part of my history honors graduation project, where I analyzed the historic relationship between private real estate developers and local government in lower Manhattan, why that neighborhood turned out the way it did, because it's a unique neighborhood within the city. And I was hoping that that process would help me clarify which direction I wanted to go in. And what I took away is both of those fields are fantastic and have a tremendous amount of influence over how things are the way they are in our communities. But ultimately, it seemed like developers had a lot more fun. They could be a lot more creative and ultimately made a lot more money. So that was the direction I decided to pursue after I graduated. So I moved back to Washington, D.C. and took a job in real estate. Once you were in real estate development, did you feel like this is it? This is what I wanted to do. And it felt right. I loved it. I thought it was a really amazing field, but I also happened to start my job in 2007, which is possibly one of the worst times in the world to go into real estate. So I definitely got to see a lot of the difficult parts of that industry and watching half of my colleagues lose their jobs overnight. At one point, a company that I worked at basically dissolved over the course of three days. Seeing some folks within my field act in ways that I found really objectionable. I was often the only woman in the room who wasn't a secretary, which was an uncomfortable place to be and not something I'd really ever had to deal with before. I'd gone to a girl's school for 10 years. I went to college where half of my classmates were women. This was my first time encountering that kind of a work environment. And I definitely had some great coworkers and great bosses along the way. But my big takeaway was, I really like this field, but I don't ever want to have a boss again. So I decided to go to business school to try and figure out how to start my own company. And at the time, did you think you would be more real estate oriented still, but just being your own boss? Or what was the lens of your MBA? I did. I took all the real estate classes at MIT Sloan and thought I was going to go start my own real estate development firm. And then I met Julie. In our prior conversation, you talked about how special your friendship is with Julie. Can you share more about that and your journey at MIT, both getting an MBA there? Sure. Julie Lean is my business partner. She has been for almost 10 years now, and she is the best person I know, period. People say, oh, you're so lucky that you happen to work so well with your best friend. It wasn't an accident. We didn't fall into this. We basically met at business school about 12 years ago. We started off as friends. We ended up doing a number of class projects together. We found ourselves taking a lot of the same classes and sharing a lot of the same interests. We ended up helping to found our first year and then running our second year, the largest women's event on MIT's campus. So we had the opportunity to see what it was like to work together. And we just knew we had to find a way to work together. She had gone back to business school because she was going to start a company in her field, which was political polling and political consulting. She had tried to convince me to start a company in that space. I had tried to convince her to start a company in the real estate space. And we just couldn't agree. And we decided we really had to figure out something that we would both be really excited to work on for a long time. Ultimately, that became first Tumble, which was an accelerator, and now the Urban Innovation Fund, which is our venture fund. 
tell me more about Tamil for those who don't know. So while we were students and trying to figure out what we wanted to do together, we were both working at companies that we would now call urban tech companies, although we didn't know it at the time. So I was working at a startup called Fundrise, which is now a really big company, sort of like a betterment type product for private real estate assets. Julie was working for a company called Revolution Foods, which is a healthy school meal provider. At the time, they were a little company. Now, of course, they're a very big company serving school districts around the country. And this was right around the time that companies like Lyft and Airbnb were just getting off the ground. We felt like they all had something in common. They were solving really interesting community challenges in cities. At the same time, they were scaling in ways you don't typically see community organizations scale. So we ended up embarking on a research study of what we started calling urban tech. We just needed an umbrella language to describe them. They were solving these really interesting community challenges and they were scaling really quickly, but they were also facing a lot of similar challenges around regulatory and political issues. So when we graduated, we surveyed the investor landscape and it became pretty clear to us that no one was backing these companies in a concerted manner and they definitely were not giving them good regulatory and political advice we decided we wanted to fill that gap. So we took our research to Blackstone, which had a very short-lived program when they first went public to support new and innovative types of entrepreneurship around the country. They funded us along with Omidyar Network and a few others to launch an incubator and validate our thesis, which was that there are a lot of entrepreneurs that want to solve these types of problems that could benefit from meaningful regulatory and political interventions. We incubated idea stage urban tech companies out of our offices for about three years and really honed in on our perspective on regulatory and political interventions, but also sourcing strategies. I think so much of what we learned is that you can look to regulation and policy to really inform what's next, what's coming down the pike. And that's definitely played a big role in us finding amazing companies ever since. That whole experience gave us the credibility to go launch a more traditional venture fund in 2016. Going to 2016, can you share more about the idea of Urban Innovation Fund? How is it different than Tumble and what's the mission of UIF? Tumble was an incubator. So we were incubating idea stage founders, giving them a small amount of cash and a structured curriculum and office space for a few months. But that was really it. Whereas the Urban Innovation Fund is a much more traditional venture capital fund. So our current fund, we just announced it's a $101 million core fund and a $20 million opportunity fund. And we back pre-seed and seed stage startups that are working on issues of livability, sustainability, and economic vitality in cities. So we're typically leading or writing large checks into early stage rounds, generally trying to be helpful, hands-on investors. But we do place a special emphasis on regulatory and political support just because we've seen it be a real area of need for our portfolio companies. I would describe it as an evolution from what we first started doing. Can you share an area or a segment that may be interesting to some that they have no idea anything about it? When you think about anything regulatory or in the political framework, it's confusing to many and it's so complex that people might not focus on it. We have found that companies, even in the same industry, face very different regulatory and political challenges. Maybe it's a regulatory gray area. Maybe they're operating in a highly unionized area. Maybe they're just operating in an up and coming space that hasn't been well known before. A good example is one of our portfolio companies, Electrify. We led their seed round back in 2019. Electrification was not a hot space. The company essentially helps large fleets transition to electric vehicles with a really comprehensive software suite. This was during the Trump administration, which was not particularly friendly to electric vehicle manufacturers and just that industry generally. Like 1% of vehicles on the road in the US were electric. It just wasn't a mainstream thing. And also, a lot of venture capitalists had been really burned by all of the excitement around autonomy. 
there was this conversation, everyone's going to have an autonomous vehicle by 2023. It didn't pan out that way. And they'd spent a lot of money and gotten really burned. And so there was a little less excitement, let's say, to go whole hog behind another big transportation innovation movement. But we were looking at regulations coming out of places like California, the EU, Australia. And we felt like there was just a lot of momentum behind electrification, especially commercial electrification. We led this round. We love this company. They've just taken off. The Biden administration obviously came in and even just last year had already announced that in a few years, the whole federal fleet was going to be electric. Of course, Congress has been really active in the last few weeks around this issue as well. But they ended up being acquired by Ford about a year and a half after we led that round and almost returned our whole fund. We think there's a lot to be said for thinking very carefully about where the regulatory and political tailwinds are blowing, finding companies that have a really interesting approach to addressing those issues, as well as obviously having a great team and technical chops, and then trying to really help them. That's the crux of what we do. Congrats on that deal and many more successes, which your investors have told me about, and then some. One thing that's interesting when I go to the website and I hear about your background and Julie's background is you have this lens of diversity and inclusion without making it a pointed state. And I think in the world of ESG, where people are just fatigued by that headline, what I love is that you guys do it and don't really mention it. But I would love to share some of your amazing portfolio stats, which I think are staggering. You guys don't lead with it. It's just something organic that you have come about in your portfolio. We're a 100% women-owned firm and 77% of the companies we've backed to date have a woman or person of color on the founding team, which is something we're really proud of. It's not something we actively select for, but I think it does speak to some of the positive externalities that come from having different folks around the table making those investment decisions. That's something that's been very consistent from day one, and we hope to continue that same track record moving forward. Kudos to that. I'm allergic to what I call vanity metrics of, oh, we do this and that. And I love how you guys don't lead with that because the idea is that it should be organic. In the idea of Urban Innovation Fund and you're investing in the cities, what are some of the future trends you think are exciting for the listeners to hear? We try to be really open-minded. I think when a lot of people think urban, they think transportation or maybe housing, maybe GovTech, that's it. But our perspective is to be a great community. There are so many things that are important, whether it's great education, clean water, access to great public health services, small businesses, having opportunities to be successful. So we try to keep a really open mind. We have been doing a lot of investigation around women's health more generally. So we just signed a term sheet with a company that hopefully we'll be able to share soon that's working on women's health intervention, which we're super excited about. Electrification more broadly continues to be a really strong area for us, an area of a lot of excitement. So we've been spending a lot of time there as well. Can you share more about your team? You had mentioned your co-founder and partner, Julie. What's the rest of the team look like? A little bit more about Julie as well. Yeah. So we're a small, mighty team of three and a half at the moment, soon to be four. Julie, my co-founder, is a managing partner at the firm alongside me. We have an associate, Janari Cyrus, who's based in LA, who is awesome. His background is also actually in commercial real estate and private equity. We have a summer associate right now who sadly will be leaving us next week, but we have a principal who's starting in September, which is going to be awesome. And he also has a background in real estate, private equity. So I think I have a little bit of influence there and bias, (laughs) clearly. But I do think there's just a lot of overlap in terms of interest and skill between the real estate finance space and what we do here at the Urban Innovation Fund. When you think about the Urban Innovation Fund and what your goals are at large, but is there an ultimate goal and mission? 
How do you track that? You mentioned a few of the team members have a bit more of a real estate lens. It's broad in nature in terms of the investable universe, but I'm curious if there are certain core themes that you really want to focus on. We try to be really open-minded. It's not like we say, we must find a company that's tackling this specific issue, or we want to make sure that a third of our portfolio is in the ed tech space. We don't have those types of parameters. We try to be really opportunistic, especially at the early stage. I think that's important. We do issue on an annual basis what we call our urban outcomes report, which quantifies and adds a little bit of color to where we are. So we share this document primarily with our investors, although we've started putting it on our website recently, which shares roll-up stats around the demographics of the team, the demographics of the boards that we have set up for our portfolio companies, but also includes a lot of case studies and lends some color to the sectors we're investing in. What do we think is so exciting about those areas where there might be themes or industries that we think are particularly promising? That's a way for us to step back on an annual basis and see where we are and take stock. I love it. And I highly recommend our listeners download the report. I'm not in that field, but when I read it, it gives me this burst of energy and inspiration because one, it's beautifully laid out, but two, it talks about your portfolio companies and the future of cities in this dynamic way that you can't help but be energized. So I highly recommend reading that. What is the end goal for UIF if you have one to share? We don't. I would say my only end goal is to keep working with Julie. That's what initially motivated us to start working together. And that's the goal moving forward. We want to bring other folks along with us. And we're so grateful that we've been able to build this ecosystem of entrepreneurs who also want to work with us. We feel so lucky, but fundamentally at the core goal for me is to continue building things with Julie. A lot of people talk about their professional accomplishments after I extract it, because most of my guests are very humble. But what's interesting about you is it's very clear that you went first with connection, not perfection professionally. And I love that because it drives so much of your portfolio company, but the way you're building the fund, at least some of your investors have told me, that comes across very genuinely and authentically. And I just love that and want to share that with you because you don't find that very much in the investment landscape. I really appreciate you saying that. I don't know if you've ever read the founder of Trader Joe's biography. Oh, I haven't. It's a really great business book. I highly recommend it. He shares all of the various influences over the years that helped shape the business that became Trader Joe's. And he talks about a lot of the books specifically that informed him. One of them is a book about World War One. The TLDR takeaway being, it's better to have a good plan and stick with it than have the best plan and constantly tinker with it. That's kind of my approach. I got to find something good and I really need to stick with it in order to build something that hopefully will last. Before I switch the conversation to more about you, where can people learn more about the fund? A good place to start is the Urban Innovation Fund website, which is just urbaninnovationfund.com. Love it. I could ask you so much more about UIF and all the interesting trends you're seeing and more of what you're excited about, but I will let the listeners find out more at urbaninnovationfund.com. Now, switching gears, I love this part of the interview and where I ask folks the signature questions I ask everyone on the show. Who or what inspires you to do the work you do? There are so many people that inspire me every day. It's somebody new, but someone I've been thinking about a lot recently is Golda Meir. She was the first female prime minister of Israel. And in spite of so many disadvantages and biases, she pursued a life of service and leadership. And she was a really serious person who got things done. And her story really moves me personally. So I would highly recommend her biography, Lioness, that came out a couple of years ago. I completed it recently and, and have been thinking about it a lot. Lioness, I'm going to pick up that book. I admittedly don't know much about her, but I'm excited to read that book. You talked about your professional path and some lack of female peers. I love that quote, it's hard to be what you don't see. And so here you are trailblazing this path. Did you have a mentor role model that you looked up to? 
I looked up to a lot of people. I never had an official mentor. And to some extent, I appreciate the comment, you can't be what you can't see. But I also think that's really limiting. People have imaginations. And I didn't know anyone that was doing venture, let alone a woman that was doing venture, especially in the impact space. And my general philosophy is, I think I can learn something from just about anybody. And I think that's why I enjoy fundraising so much. It's funny, I talk to a lot of other GPs and almost uniformly, they hate fundraising. Yeah, you might be the only one. Yeah. And it's one of my favorite. I love it. I think it's a chance to meet so many smart, accomplished people and absorb what made them successful. And I think I've learned so much from a lot of them. That's actually why I like the seat I'm in, not for the podcasting, but my day job is to meet incredible investors and business folks. And to your point, I just get so inspired by them. I find them to be so interesting themselves, but then also I learn so much from them in all the conversations. You're very humble and you don't mention it, but You've done an incredible job in the last six years of creating UIF and even before that starting Tummel. I'm curious what you're most proud of. I'm proud of a lot of things, but I would say my son, Max, who's about to turn two, is probably my number one accomplishment. Also, my marriage and my partnership with Julie are really important to me. Those relationships are really at the center of my life. I was at an event recently where everyone shared their bio and they all started with, I'm so-and-so, the mom of Jacob and whoever. And I was like, oh crap, my bio doesn't have any of that. It's very cut and dry. It just says where I went to school and what my job is. I should probably update that, but that's just never been my style. But it's definitely privately, at least my number one focus. Either personally or professionally, if you can share one of your most impactful growth moments that came from a struggle or some type of failure. We covered it a little bit, but the 2008 financial crisis was rough. (laughs) Seeing all those layoffs, seeing how I was treated, how my coworkers were treated, seeing some of my colleagues not rise to the occasion, that was a really difficult period. And especially because it was my first or second job out of college, I didn't really know anything. I thought I knew a lot, but that experience really taught me that I didn't know very much at all. It really forced me to figure out what I wanted. And I think it really clarified the thing I wanted was to be in charge. I also wanted to be working on something that I really personally and in my heart felt passionately about. Stripping that back made it easier when I met Julie to prioritize because I really thought I wanted to do real estate development. Taking a moment to step back and say, yes, I want to do real estate development, but why? One, because I want to do something that is meaningful for the community in my heart, but also I want to be in charge and I need to seize this opportunity and go with it. That was a very transformative experience. Having a bad first or second job no matter what, will color your career for the rest of your life in some ways. Can you share what it's like to work with your friend? Now that you've worked together for over a decade and known each other for longer, it sounds delightful. What are some of the hiccups? I would say by and large, it's been great. I do remember the first time we ever had a fight, we were trying to figure out what companies to accept to our first batch at Tumble, the incubator. I don't remember if this was a company that I wanted and she didn't or vice versa, but we really strongly disagreed. And I remember afterwards going home and just crying and thinking like, it's not going to work. I thought we had this perfect relationship and we had our first disagreement. It's all over. And I think she had a very similar reaction to that experience. So we came back together and said, we have to learn how to disagree. And the fact that first and foremost, I believe that she is coming from a place of wanting us to be successful. And I have to hope that she feels that same way. One of our most notable characteristics is that we're really good at disagreeing. I think a lot of people who work for and with us will notice like we are very comfortable low-level bickering because it helps us move past things. And I truly believe she's one of the smartest people in the whole world. So when she has an opinion or a thought, it behooves me to listen, even if I ultimately have the right opinion. 
I think it strengthens our firm rolling through that and learning how to disagree and understanding that it comes from a place of trying to make us and our firm better has totally transformed the way that we work. And it's been awesome. In a world where you're on the investment side, but it's impact focused, some would say that it's mutually exclusive, that you can't do good without compromising returns and performance. And so I'm curious from your lens, what success means for you? My grandmother used to quote this old Jewish saying, which is, who is wise? Someone who learns from other people, who is strong, someone who has self-control, who is rich, someone who is satisfied with what they have, and who is honorable, someone who honors others. And I think that's a great framework. Like I can't control exactly where I'm going to end up, but that's the right framework and how at least I aspire to measure my success. Love that. The way that Lauren described it is it's so beautifully focused, but also your returns are phenomenal. And so we mentioned Electrify and some of the areas, but is there anything more about UIF that you can share that our listeners may not know or would be super interesting that you have been passionate about? People often ask us or they assume that we have different criteria than other venture funds because of our real positive focus, because of the demographic trends of our portfolio. By different, I mean lower standards, (laughs) like less emphasis on explosive growth or technology. That's a question we get asked a lot in a passive aggressive fashion. And our financial performance is the best counter to that. But our perspective is there are lots of great entrepreneurs out there. We want to find ones that are working on problems that we really care about. There are lots of important urban challenges that are not right for us. 99.5% of the companies we meet, we say no to. We are looking for companies that are tackling a problem that could work just as well in San Francisco as Tulsa, as Richmond, Virginia, and beyond. It's a small needle to thread, but we feel really passionate about these companies. And we feel like finding great companies that are solving these problems in a scalable way is the best way to make a lot of money. When talking to specifically the early stage ones and the venture capitalists, Are there certain characteristics or attributes that you have identified in finding the entrepreneurs that not only have the great idea and this great TAM, but can make that thrive? When we first started off, we took the approach of we want to find great entrepreneurs who are passionate about these issues. And if they're a little rough around the edges and they don't know about fundraising or anything else, we can coach them. We can teach them. We will polish up this diamond in the rough. Over time, we have realized that that's really hard. And that finding a founder that is an amazing evangelist for the business is necessary. Like there must be someone on the founding team who as soon as they wake up in the morning and the last thing they do before they go to bed is just sing to high heaven how amazing their company is. And they can really articulate the big vision, both for getting early investors on board, getting employees on board, keeping everyone motivated through inevitable hard times that come up for all early stage startups. That doesn't mean that's the only kind of person that should be on the team. But if the team doesn't have that person, they're in big trouble. That is an important characteristic that we look for for all of the companies that we fund. Can you share one bad deal or one hiccup at the fund level that was surprising? A bad portfolio company, a bad thesis? All companies go through challenging times. And what we've seen maybe in hyperdrive because of the pandemic is that great companies are the ones who navigate through adversity. Some of the companies that seemed the strongest going into the pandemic crumbled in the face of challenge. Really tough time, especially that first quarter. And there were other companies who really surprised us, who rose to the occasion, who pivoted their product, motivated the team to stay focused, even at a time when they were all isolated and alone. And it was a very hot job market and they could have lost a bunch of employees, but they didn't. 
that was a really clarifying experience for us. It's hard to know who those people are in advance. I certainly haven't figured it out, but those are the best founders. And that's certainly what we hope to find when we back a new team. Do you end up spending more time finding and sourcing deals and finding the entrepreneurs or do they at this point find you given the impact you've made and the reputation you have now? It's a little bit of everything. We spend a lot of time out at college campuses and at events and talking to other investors, but we also have a cold (laughs) hotline on our website and we look at every deal that comes in on that email account. So we try to be really open-minded about where the best companies are going to come from. And I think that also probably contributes to some of the demographic diversity of our portfolio and that we're not just relying on warm referrals for all of the deals that we do. What's next for Clara Brenner? I'm really just focused on having a great and joyful year. I think the pandemic has been so hard on everyone. I I had a pandemic baby, so did Julie. And and I really just want to spend time with my friends and my family. And I just want to hug them and have a good time. (laughs) 